0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams, it's the Pledge Drive, and so we have the best of Access Utah for you, and we've gone into the archives, found uh, excerpts from some of our favorite programs. The theme today is books. We do a lot of book interviews on Access Utah. That's a great pleasure for me. We hear from a lot of people who say, uh, boy, I make my reading list based on what you do on Access Utah. I do too. And uh, so I get the joy of uh, interviewing some great authors. And uh, we're going to have with us for the hour uh, Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books. Uh, He's going to be on with us talking about his love for books and the need to support uh, book interviews on Access Utah. Uh, Terry Guy, development officer, is uh, here with me. And we're going to hear excerpts from three of our favorite book interviews. Uh, We're going to hear about the legacy of Edward Abbey. And we'll reach back to 2014 when uh, Ken Sanders was part of a panel ahead of a, a film screening on Edward Abbey. And we have uh, telescoped all of the Ken Sanders excerpts from that interview. He's remembering his friend. We'll also talk with uh, have an excerpt from now, um, an, uh, an interview with John Farrell from this year, May of this year. His book is Richard Nixon, The Life. And we all know with the words Nixonian, Watergate territory being used increasingly in connection with the Trump administration. A lot of parallels from that time to this, including issues of race. And we'll be talking with John Farrell. We'll have an excerpt there uh, dealing with the 1968 election and the beginning of the Southern strategy for Republicans. And then uh, finally, at the end of the program, we'll uh, reach back to 2015 an interview I had with uh, Anand Girdardas, his book, The True American, tells a fascinating story of an immigrant, a Bangladeshi immigrant, after 9-11, and an avowed American terrorist named Mark Stroman shoots him, maims him, and uh, 10 years after the shooting, after an Islamic pilgrimage, uh, this immigrant has a, a strange idea. If he's ever to be whole, he says he must re-enter his shooter's life. We'll have an excerpt from that conversation as well. Right now, we're uh, seeking your support for Access Utah. And uh, Terry Guy, this is a great time to do that because we have a dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar match going on. We do.
1: Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont are matching dollar for dollar today, up to $3,000. We thank them very much for doing that. Sonia is in the USU College of Education and Human Services. Uh, She's a speech-language pathology associate professor. Ryan DuPont is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at USU, as well as research associate at the Utah Water Research Lab and head of the Division of Environmental Engineering. So appropriate that they are... uh, are challenging us today with this and we hope that you'll take a moment to give us a call at 1-800-826-1495 or go to upr.org. If you're listening to the repeat this evening, uh, definitely go to upr.org and make that pledge for us.
0: And we bring in uh, Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books. Uh, Ken Sanders, welcome back to the program.
1: Uh, good morning
0: Tom good Thank morning yeah thanks for being on with us we're <laughs> we're highlighting book interviews on access Utah's a big part of the program I love these interviews uh, dr- talk directly to the authors in most cases and uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna start out the program today with uh, reaching back to 2014 when uh, when you were a part of a panel discussing Edward Abbey ahead of a uh, film by oh. <laughs> uh, ml Lincoln <laughs> and what I've done uh, Ken is uh, I've uh, I've uh, pretended that you were the only panelist and I've taken only your portions up so we could telescope it down to about 10 minutes uh so you're, you'll twice,
2: be uh experimental yeah, experimental <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you'll be you'll be uh remembering your your friend uh, edward abbey you do you you associated with him
2: uh ed was a good friend a long time ago uh if edward abbey were alive today he would be 90 years old
0: oh wow he wow. died
2: he died at age 62 and i still miss him a lot as many many people do
0: yeah um, so we'll jump into this and we'll talk a little more after we hear this, but, um, I understand I'm reading your bio here on Ken Sanders Rare books. You can go to the, to the website, kensandersbooks.com and just quoting here, starting with Nancy Drew in childhood, progressing into serious, uh, bibliophilia. Sometime after that, Sanders fascination with books and printed matter has been lifelong. So starting with Nancy Drew.
2: Well, yeah, and for a young boy, that was problematical because, you know, hardy boys were acceptable for boys, but Nancy Drew, you kind of had to sneak them back then. (laughs)
0: But frankly,
2: Nancy Drew can kick the hardy boys' uh, butt all over the place.
0: Oh, Really? I, I I never. They're better, th-
1: they're better. They're better adventures. They were better. Written. Yeah.
0: Okay. I guess. May, prob- maybe for that reason, because of that stigma, I was more Hardy Boys and not Nancy Drew. And
1: I think oh, I was yeah. probably more Nancy Drew. Definitely Nancy Drew. Young girl yeah. w- growing up, definitely read those.
2: Yeah. <laughs> she, she was a, She was an icon for young girls. There's no question.
0: Yeah. Uh, of, cor- of course, books have obviously been a b- big important part of your part uh, life, including you can see Ken Sanders on uh, periodic- periodically on Antiques Road. Show appraising uh, rare books. Um, so, what would you say, Ken Satters, about the importance of uh, supporting uh, book discussions on the radio?
2: Well, what I think—I mean, I'm I'm all for public radio and all of its uh, varieties and diversity, and and that's the answer to why why we have Utah Public Radio and we have the great KUER, we have KCPW, and we have the People's Station KRC. And why do we need all those stations? Because we need diversity. We need diversity more in this country than any time before. And what Access Utah, the local literary scene does, it gives a voice to people that don't otherwise have a voice. You're not going to see these voices on commercial radio stations and television stations. This is our only chance. Uh, we need diversity. We need. We have so many find fine writers and poets and playwrights and creative people that come out of Utah and what your station and what your programming does is provide all of us a voice for those voices and thanks for doing it and we all need to support it.
0: So uh, Terry how how to support it?
1: Yes, give us a call this morning or go to upr.org. Our number is 1-800-826 one four nine five, and uh, I appreciate the thought on commercial radio and television because I don't think people understand exactly how we work in public radio. Sometimes, uh, with public radio, we're not allowed to run advertisements. We don't have commercials. We depend on our members and our businesses that support us. So we appreciate that. Can that that's very good point. Thank you.
2: You're, you're welcome, and I'll, I'll pledge 100 bucks myself this morning. Well, oh, well, you. thank you,
0: Ken. I appreciate that. Uh, well, let's jump into this, uh, this first segment, and, and then we'll t- talk a bit about Ed Abbey uh, afterwards. This was in 2014. Yeah. We had a panel discussion uh, ahead of a uh, uh, showing a couple of screenings of Emma Lincoln's uh, 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 film on Edward Ren- Abbey.
2: Wrenched.
0: What's that? Wrenched is the title of Wrenched, that's right. Wrenched, um, and we talked a little. These segments a little bit about uh, monkey wrenching. Um, so let's let's hear a bit of uh, a bit of this. And uh, what I've done is taken the excerpts uh, from this panel discussion featuring uh, Ken Sanders. So you hear Ken Sanders talking about his friend uh, Edward Abbey. Let's hear this from Access Utah. Ken Sanders, ML Lincoln uh, just said that uh, she, she's seen an uh, uptick in uh, sales of Ed Abbey's books to the young. What, what do you think the impetus is? Can you confirm that, and what do you think the impetus is? But,
2: well, the books have never quit selling. I mean, when Desert Solitaire was quietly written in the 50s and 60s, published in sixty-eight. Uh, It was a very quiet book, A Lone Voice Crying in the Wilderness, building on what Robert Marshall and Aldo Leopold and Rachel Carson and Wallace Stegner and others had done before him, but in a unique way that no one else has ever captured. The books initially, neither Desert Solitaire or Monkey Ranch Gang, even sold out their 5,000 copy first printings. They were remaindered in the first editions. But... Now, even in Ed's lifetime, both those two books had become what he always dreaded, classics. He never wanted any book he wrote to become a classic because Ed Abbey thought that the the very definition of the word classic meant a book everyone talked about and gave accolades to, but never read. Well, Ed, you've got it both ways. Those two books of yours, of your 21 works, have become classics, but they're still alive, they're still being read. Both of those titles have sold in millions of copies now, and they're selling better now to a generation of high school and college students that weren't yet born on the planet when Ed Abbey died 25 years
0: ago. Here's a comment um, from Steve McIntyre on our Facebook page. When I moved west from New York City and Connecticut, now the better part of a decade ago, the first thing I did was read all the Wallace Stegner and Edward Abbey, I don't know him well enough to address him as Ed, that I could lay my hands on. If I'm not mistaken, both of these great writers were, like me, Western transplants. Ken Sanders, what what do you say to that? Uh, Absolutely.
2: Uh, Ed was a kid from Appalachia that hitchhiked here after his military service in the 40s and fell in love with the West and uh, never left. Uh, Wallace Stegner came out of uh, Idaho and, or I mean, Iowa, went all over Helen back with his wayward family and father, George Stegner, and ended up growing up and became a man in Salt Lake City, Utah. And although he ultimately left us for California, like, Abby left for Arizona, uh, the heart and soul of what they became as writers and what they wrote about in their careers, clearly, I'd say 50% or more of both authors' out- published output is set or inspired by the great state of Utah and its lovely wilderness.
0: So, uh, Ken Sanders, do, do you think uh, those two great writers, do you think their work, their perspective was influenced by the fact that they, that they were transplants?
2: Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it always gives one a different perspective on what you end up calling your homeland if you come from somewhere else. And I, I might add, uh, Tim DeChristopher's, although from West Virginia,
0: not uh, Pennsylvania, is also an Appalachian's kid. Mm. As You talk to people about legacy of, of Ed Abbey. Ed Abbey was, was sort of pushing, wasn't he? And, and I wonder where you think the line is or should be today in terms of what's acceptable, what's loves- not.
2: Ed loved to provoke and confront. Uh, America has a love affair with violence, violence against living things and people. Edward Abbey never advocated violence except against objects, inanimate objects and machinery. that's something that's seemingly unacceptable to the corporate industrial establishment. Uh, that's what Edward Abbey was talking about with Anarchy and all of his books throughout the 21 published books. And that's something, one of the reasons why maybe the, the Hollywood version of the Monkey Ranch Gang has never been ma- made because of that embrace of violence against machinery. Uh, and that's only as a last case. You know, a bulldozer is not a sentient being. Being—it's not right or wrong. It's the—the context is everything. And I think, you know, when Ed Abbey was alive, 25 years ago now, it seems like yesterday to me. I can still hear his voice in my head, and he—he never needed anybody to speak for him alive and he certainly doesn't need any of us to speak for him now in a, in a greater sense. You know, if you want to know who Edward Abbey was or what he stood for, read the 21 books.
0: Hmm. We have a caller. This is Jim from Reading, California. Jim, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment.
3: Yeah, hi. Y- yes. I, uh, yes, go got ahead. I to see uh, Edward Abbey in Fox City a couple of times and um, he was giving a presentation in an auditorium and there were there were like 800 1,000 people. And what was interesting was he wasn't, people were asking him what should they do about the environmental movement and what should we do about protecting old growth trees, for, for instance. And he turned the question around back to them saying, what are you going to do about protecting old growth trees? And the, the big point that I got out of that message was he wanted. People to take action, but he himself didn't want to be the environmental leader he wanted to be the writer and he was proud of the fact that he was a writer and um, and he and he said he you know i'm not not so much the environmental leader as I am a person that writes books about environmental protection and and um, trying to uh, get people excited about protecting the environment. So that was, uh, I just thought that was revealing because the, that audience was really looking for an environmental leader. And it and he didn't, he made it very clear that he didn't want to be that leader. He he wanted to be the writer that wrote about the West and protecting the West.
0: Uh, Jim, when when was this?
3: That was in um, 1988, 89.
0: Mm. Yeah. This was in Salt Lake. Yeah. Well, i appreciate your memory there. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Ken Saunders, I wonder, responding to, to Jim's memory there, does that resonate with you?
2: Oh, absolutely. Jim makes a very good point. Edward Abbey considered himself a writer, first and foremost. He wrote openly about, I'm not a naturalist. I don't want to wear those pants i don't know anything about the subject and he didn't to be anybody's guru he certainly wrote and spoke about that in his own right and anyone that doesn't think that edward abbey is a serious writer i would challenge you to take a sentence or a paragraph or any any portion of any of his published writings and try and edit it see how far you get
0: Hmm. interesting uh i wonder if you would read a passage uh, an abbey passage i think you have one prepared
2: uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it's from the introduction to the original Desert Solitaire, and it's still in every every edition. Uh, let me quote, uh, he, he in right next to this introduction, Abby quotes uh, the poet Neruda, uh, and he has a little piece that I just love called, Give me silence, water, hope, give me struggle, iron, volcanoes, Pablo Neruda. So, finally, a word of caution. Do not jump into your automobile next June and rush out to the canyon country, hoping to see some of that which I've attempted to evoke in these pages. In the first place, you can't see anything from a car. You've got to get out of the goddamn contraption and walk. Better yet, crawl on hands and knees over the sandstone and through the thorn bush and cactus. When traces of blood begin to mark your trail, you'll see something. Maybe. Probably not. In the second place, most of what I write about in this book is already gone or going under fast. This is not a travel guide, but an elegy, a memorial. You're holding a tombstone in your hands, a bloody rock. Don't drop it on your foot. Throw it at something big
0: and glassy. What do you have to lose? Mm -hmm. Edward Abbey. Uh, That's from Desert Solitaire? Pardon? Uh, Which book is that from?
2: Uh, The introduction to uh, Desert Solitaire. Desert Solitaire, okay.
0: And Ken Sanders will give you the last word. What leaps to your mind when you think about Ed Abbey today?
2: Ed Abbey lives. He lives today. He lives to a whole generation of people that weren't born on this planet when he died. His works are alive, they're in print, and they still resonate with people that discover him for the first time. It doesn't seem possible to me... uh, that he's been gone for 25 years. I, I I can't even, I still can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. I, I can still hear him talking to me, provoking me, con- confronting him. And as I already said, if, if you didn't have the privilege of knowing the man or the writer, you still can. All you got to do is read those 21 books. Mm-hmm. The canon, the Edward Abbey canon. You can spell that with one N
0: or two. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You're listening to Access Utah. That was a portion of a panel discussion we had in 2014 here on Access Utah, which included uh, Ken Sanders. I was head of a a couple screenings of uh, ML Lincoln's uh, film, Wrenched. And we have with us uh, Terry Guy, Development Officer at UPR. And we have with us uh, Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books, uh, talking about uh, the need to support uh, public uh, radio. Uh, so Ken Sanders there you, you, you mentioned you can't believe 25 years now 28 years since uh, Edward Abbey's uh, gone and he's still provoking you you're still confronting these these ideas that's I guess that's a legacy of Edward Abbey uh, uh, oh it,
2: it is I mean his is is uh, you forced me to listen to myself for 10 minutes on the air. <laughs> I'll find a way to pay you back for that somehow, Tom yeah. and Terry, but oh. Very good. Uh, I don't like to listen to myself. I'd much rather listen to Edward Abbey or somebody like that. But yeah, he's. He's gone, but he's still around. The books, they're alive. We, we we sell hundreds of copies of his titles new every year, and I'm not a new bookstore. I'm a used bookstore and and we sell every used copy we can get our hands on. He's still relevant, as as I said in the tape, to to multiple generations now that weren't born when when Ed Abbey walked the planet. There's no other writer quite like him, and I've known a lot of writers and uh not all from Utah. Charles Bowden, the now late writer from uh, Tucson, Arizona, who is a good friend of Ed Abbey, uh, but he's not an Edward Abbey. A blood orchid, probably Bowden's masterpiece, uh, is unlike anything uh Ed Abbey ever wrote. Our own Terry Tempest Williams and her brilliant book, Way Back When, Refuge in Unnatural History, uh is a is a brilliant piece. And right there in your own backyard. Uh, Mae Swenson, the the, Mor- the woman, she came from a Mormon family. She was an LDS herself. She is one of the most widely anthologized poets. In the entire country. And for the longest time, people in her home state, in her home valley, d- didn't know who she was. If I exhibit at the New York Book Fair every year and I have May Swenson books there, people in New York know who May Swenson is. But thanks to Utah State University and the Special Collections Library there, they've done symposiums, they've got huge May Swenson archives now, and they're finally giving her her due. And she's one of the finest American poets that ever lived. The late Ken Brewer, also from from the Cache Valley, uh, a brilliant, brilliant poet, and our uh, second uh, Poet Laureate following from southern Utah, David Lee, the pig poet of Paraguna. I mean, it just doesn't <laughs> get better than this. Um, we've had a lot of fine, fine writers in the past and to this day, and I think radio stations like UPR... Help us give voice to the treasures in our own community,
0: and we've had most of those writers on uh, here on Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. So we're we're trying to do our part. Uh, how to yeah. how to support this, Terry?
1: Well, give us a call, 1-800-826-1495, or go to upr.org. Uh, I was going to mention, or add to that, that Star Colbrook is our Poet Laureate here in Cache Valley yeah. right now, and she is absolutely fabulous. We enjoy her company here at uh, Utah Public Radio and all over Cache Valley, and I believe she's also come down to Salt Lake City and done some things with you down there. But um, all these wonderful talents that we're so lucky to have and um, to have the Forum of Access Utah, um, uh, here at Utah Public Radio, it's special to be able to share that with our listeners, not only in the mornings, but in the evenings at 7 o'clock, we uh, re-air these good programs, so uh, we really appreciate people like like you, Ken, that will join us on Access Utah. Uh, we hope our members will make a pledge. This is a great time for you to give us a call at one 1495 and make a pledge to Utah Public Radio and to find programs like this that Tom puts together for us uh, with guests like Ken Saunders to learn all about Edward Abbey and and these other amazing people that we get to know in the state of Utah.
0: Uh, Ken, a, a friend of mine asked me to ask you this question, so here it is. I've I've got to remembered. Uh, he wonders if you if you have uh, a Deseret alphabet p- primer.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, Mormon uh, Brigham Young's uh, probably one of his least successful ideas. Uh, he commissioned in the uh, mid 19th century a unique alphabet for Mormons to use, called the Deseret uh, alphabet. There were two. Primers, that the Deseret first book, the Deseret second book published, also a first book of Nephi, the first chapters of the uh, Book of Mormon, and also, the rare one, an entire Book of Mormon printed in Deseret. Uh, Those were the only four books published in the Deseret Alphabet language. The idea died with Brigham Young in 1877, and it's probably, in this digital 21st century, if you Google Deseret Alphabet, it's probably more popular now than it ever was in the 19th century. And to answer the question, well, yes, of course I have (laughs) copies.
0: Of course. Of course you would, yes. All right. I imagine that would be fairly expensive.
2: Uh, the the primers themselves were relatively common. They okay. they sell in the one one two three hundred dollar oh,
0: range. Okay. The Book of
2: Mormon is truly rare and sells anywhere between five to ten thousand dollars.
0: Mm. Okay. Well, this particular friend that would be a, a great Christmas gift. I'll I'll talk to his wife. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> he, he's he's fascinated by the desert alphabet. Uh, it, as am I. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting experiment that uh, Brigham Young uh, did there. Um, I
2: think, like I say, it's more popular now. If you Google it online, uh, people have made their own Deseret alphabet uh, type fonts, so you can send secret me- messages to your friends uh, in Deseret if you want. Or yeah. there's a Edward Edward Bateman has done a, a terrific job of doing uh, things in Deseret alphabet, as many other uh, Utah artists have.
0: Hmm. Well, again, we are uh, raising uh, money for uh, Access Utah and for Utah Public Radio here in the Pledge Drive. Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books has uh, joined us, and uh, he's he's pledged $100. Uh, won't you add your support to his and and all that he does with uh, for books? Uh, and you can go to 800 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, looking for your pledge. Uh, if you're listening in the evening, uh, the best place to go is online, upr.org, upr.org. Well, Ken Sanders, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll uh, hear an excerpt, about a 10-minute excerpt, from uh, an interview I did earlier this year with Richard Farrell. He has a new biography, fascinating biography of Richard Nixon. It's called Richard Dixon, The Life. A lot of parallels uh, then and now, so we we uh, explore those in, a, in, a, in an excerpt. So we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again in about 10 minutes. Okay. Okay, thanks. Uh, Ken Sanders is joining us. Uh, so one more time, uh, Terry Guy?
1: Take a moment to make a pledge to Utah Public Radio and to access Utah.
0: 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be hearing
4: from John Farrell about Richard Nixon. Former Supreme Court judge and best-selling author Ted Stewart joins us on Access Utah Monday, October 2nd to talk about his new book, Supreme Power, seven seven pivotal Supreme Court decisions that had a major impact on America. He will also be at Deseret Book in Logan Wednesday, September 27th and Deseret Book in Salt Lake City Saturday, September 30th for book signings. Details at DeseretBook.com.
0: A pitcher may be worth a thousand words, but in many scientific applications, a pitcher can be worth a lot more than words. Engineers at USU's Utah Water Research Laboratory have developed a relatively inexpensive unmanned aerial vehicle called Aggie Air, basically a flying computer. It delivers high-resolution remote sensing images and scientific-grade data that can be used to improve agricultural crop health and productivity, monitor surface water temperatures and snowpack levels, evaluate river restoration projects, manage invasive wetland plants, track fish and wildlife populations, and even keep an eye on ongoing road projects, just to name a few. Now that's more than
5: just a pretty picture.
0: Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, home of the Utah Water Research Lab. Learn more at engineering.usu.edu. You're listening to the best of Access Utah for the Pledge Drive, and today we're uh, we're. we're giving you excerpts from book interviews. That's a big part of Access Utah, and it's one of the joys that I have, uh, Terry Guy, that we, uh, we uh, I get to interview a lot of authors. So this next book, um, I probably would have picked up anyway. Um, Richard Nixon, The Life, a new biography of Richard Nixon. There are a lot of parallels from the, that time to today. Fascinating, and then I got to talk to the author.
1: It's it's very timely, and it's kind of nostalgic for me because I certainly remember that time very, very well. So I'm looking forward to this interview.
0: So let's uh, jump into this. Uh, you can support this kind of programming at uh, just a quick phone call at 1-800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upr.org, upr.org. Um, so let's hear a, a portion. This is from near the end of the interview. we get talking about parallels between uh, the election 1968 and how Nixon won that election and uh, to today's time. So this is an excerpt from my interview from May with, uh, with John Farrell, author of Richard Nixon, The Life. Uh, so 1968, uh, John Farrell, one of the great comebacks in, uh, in political uh, history, um, after the 1960 loss, very narrow loss for president, uh, Nixon, two years later, runs for governor of California, loses, and, um, and then he's in the wilderness, but he, but he comes back, and one of the strategies I want to talk about, uh, have you talk about, is he, he devises this, what has become famous as the Southern strategy which is kind of a, you can be seen as a you know pretty cynical indicating to you know the white southerners that uh, that I'm not going to be uh, pro african american or as they called it back then negro this coming on the heels of you know many years earlier that his first race for congress he was uh, made an honorary member of the local NAACP. so what happened
5: well i stopped this sort of narrative of the book at several points to talk about race because i think it's very revealing of of nixon's character uh, he was indeed very committed to the cause of civil rights early in his career. He was a member of the NAACP. Um, he uh, was close friends in the 1950s and an ally with Martin Luther King and played an instrumental role getting the 1957 civil rights bill um, passed and, uh, through, the, through the Senate. He was by Eisenhower's side when Eisenhower used the uh, airborne troops to uh, save the students from Central High School in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. So had a sterling record, and then uh, in the 1960, when he's running for president, he sees the possibility that he might pick up some of the southern states that Eisenhower had captured as a national hero—Florida, uh, Tennessee, Virginia, uh, Texas—if um, he just tailors his message the, the slightest bit. Kennedy was doing the same thing. It was no. Um, uh, secret to anybody that the that the winning candidate would be the one who might best manage the uh, trick of getting the uh, black turnout high in the northern cities while at the same time uh, winning in the southern states. Um, and it all came to, to a head when Martin Luther King was arrested um, on a bogus charge, shackled and taken off to a, a rural prison in the middle of the night, and everybody began to worry about whether or not he would actually survive that, that journey. Uh, and the Kennedys decided to intercede with the uh, Democratic Governor of Georgia and the and the judge in the case, um, and called Mrs. King and expressed their uh, concern, and Nixon, confronted with the same choice, decided not to, and his uh, campaign said no comment, and at that time Jackie Robinson, who uh, integrated professional baseball for the Brooklyn Dodgers, was a firm, strong Nixon supporter, and he flew to the Chicago where Nixon was campaigning, and he met with him and he in private, and when he came out of that room, there were tears streaking down his his face and. And Martin Luther King later said that Nixon had failed this test of, of moral courage. Uh, and that was the big turning point, because from that point on, Nixon just uh, believed that he was never going to get enough black votes um, to justify it. And in 1968, of course, he was running against Ronald Reagan, uh, who was running from the right, and he was running in the general election against George Wallace. Um, so he he could do with nods and winks what he needed to do to win um the Southern delegations at the convention, uh, where he promised that the Southern delegation chairman that he would quote cut out the pro Negro crap. Um and then in the general election he knew that Wallace were gonna take the deep south, but he worked very hard to win states like uh Tennessee and Virginia and um and Florida and and did so. And so you you have Nixon turning, but there's one more twist to the story, which is as President of the United States he's given the order by the supreme court to get on with the desegregation of southern schools It's the, the ruling by brown versus board of education was 1954 and both uh, eisenhower, eisenhower kennedy and johnson had all dragged their feet um, now the supreme court was getting very impatient and it fell to nixon to do the job and he did it expertly and he did it quietly and he did it successfully and he did it without violence uh... he did it by bringing black and white americans together from those states bringing them to the white house to work out plans for integration taking them into the oval office and like, and like we said this is a very awkward man who does not like personal encounters with people and and lobbying them personally calling asking them to look around the oval office and feel the weight of history that he did um and he gets it done and he becomes the biggest desegregator of southern schools um in american history and um gets very little credit for it because um uh, Nixon being Nixon he didn't want credit for it he wanted to do it all quietly so that he could continue to ap- appeal to white southerners um uh, but he did the right thing mm-hmm. um and uh, black voters in the south recognized this and he he had an approval rating of uh f- 43 to 40 among black voters in the south after they watched him desegregate those schools
0: yeah it's very very complex um that's, yeah. that that southern strategy then kind of goes up it was very successful for a long time for the republicans And then sort of becomes a problem, Um, but but it was you know it's kind of subtle. Trump made it more overt, you know, in his campaign. But it's kind of kind of a similar thing, just uh, you know, a little, little less nuanced. Um,
1: Well, I
5: think we have these huge demographic changes going on in the country, and in the long run, painting yourself into an an all-white party, um, you know, you may win an election uh, like two thousand. 16 but in the long run it's going to it's going to hurt you and i think that there are lots of people in the republican party uh who recognize this i think ronald reagan recognized this i think uh, other um conservatives recognize this and so uh, i wouldn't be surprised if uh um if trump was the last stand of the southern strategy
0: also you you talked about this you know he tried to keep it quiet because he wanted to preserve the white votes but uh, you know uh, participating with segregation or with desegregation um a lot of nixon's policies on the domestic front probably wouldn't pass muster today with with uh, conservative republicans you know epa osha being a couple of examples
5: the the list of of course he had now he had a democratic congress so he was constantly getting proposals and this was a time when people believed in government uh, activism but you know he and eisenhower had seen how um they how uh Americans put good government to use in World War II and they didn't have this sort of reflexive um uh hostility for it that uh, Ronald Reagan did um he Nixon was quite happy um to uh, and his domestic uh, record is astonishing he created the Environmental Protection Agency he created the Occupational Safety uh and uh Health Administration he Uh, signed the Endangered Species Act. He signed the the National Environmental Policy Act. He signed the Clean Air Act. He um, okayed Title IX for female uh, athletes. He approved the first muscular federal affirmative action plan. Uh, He signed two major strategic arm treaties with the the Soviet Union and brought China uh, into the uh, world of nations. Native Americans still remember his policy as being ideal. He doubled funding for the arts. Um, senior citizens who have cost-of-living increases every year can thank Richard Nixon and the, that Democratic Congress. And uh, and ironies of all ironies, it was Richard Nixon who presented to um, uh, Congress a uh, health care plan that... Uh, was very very similar to Obamacare it was based on a mandate best based on, based on private insurance with government subsidies and uh, the Democrats turned it down and Senator Edward Kennedy said later that it was the biggest legislative mistake of his career because they could have gotten Obamacare passed uh, back in 1971 or 1974 mm-hmm. and put that whole argument to rest and instead it has raged on for almost another 50 years
0: yeah and and probably beyond uh, beyond today. Um I just want to, uh we just have about uh, 5 minutes left. I want to uh treat briefly at least uh, Watergate and and the Vietnam war. You there's uh, some uh, uh explosive new reporting in your book and so I want to get to that uh before we close. But first of all, I I've always had a question about Watergate and you know this is sort of peering into Nixon's soul and his character. But it uh, it was it's always been my impression 1972 um Democrats kind of get lost in the weeds and, uh, and nominate uh, George McGovern. It looked like it was always looked like it was going to be a re-election victory, didn't it? So why authorize a break into the Democratic yeah. National Headquarters?
5: Well, it, this was a this was a long-running uh, thing of his. I mean, three months in, in his first hundred days, he had already hired the first White House uh, dirty tricksters. Um, and uh, put them to work tailing Ted Kennedy. So it was not something that sort of came upon him in the spring of 1972 when McGovern was, uh, had seized the nomination. Um, in May of 1971, uh, Nixon is captured on tape telling his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, uh, it's about time we started getting out on, on uh, following and bugging the Democratic candidates. And so his men did all that year leading up to '72. and at the time that Nixon said that, Uh, he was uh, in doubt as to whether or not he was going to have a a re-election victory. So the the motivation was there. The actual time that the burglars were caught in June of 72, by then, um, it looked like McGovern was going to to be the nominee. Um, And so the, the, the question arose as to, well, why did they already... Why, if this was so, were they in there in the Watergate? But, but these were plans that had been that had been launched a year, two years earlier, um, when Nixon was was uh, persuaded that Edmund Muskie or Ted Kennedy or or somebody else was going to be a formidable uh, competitor in '72.
0: We had a uh, caller who didn't want to go on the air. Bernadette from Rockville, uh, she has a question about uh, uh, Nixon's uh, Quaker upbringing. She wonders uh-huh. how how his Quaker upbringing influenced him uh, throughout his life and career.
5: I think definitely that this impulse for uh, creating a what he called a structure of peace, with balancing powers in in great powers in the world who would sort of face off against each other and and create um, uh, a stable environment for um, uh, economic progress, uh, came from from his mom. His mom's side of the family um, were Teddy Roosevelt Republicans. They were not um, hard right Republicans. They believed in progressivism. And of course, the um, Quaker religion is is about what's called peace in the center. And um, the Western Quakers are not quite as pacifist, committed to social justice as uh, Eastern Quakers. Um, but uh, they, that, that that strain was definitely there. And just Nixon, to... Nixon had a grandfather who died um, fighting uh, for the Union at uh, at Gettysburg. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, he had deep roots on that side.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. the best of Access Utah. We're highlighting book interviews, a big part of Access Utah, and uh, this interview is from May of this year. You can find this on our website, the full interview, uh, with author John Farrell uh, on his latest biography, Richard Nixon, The Life. And we have with us Ken Sanders from uh, Ken Sanders Rare Books and Terry Guy, Development Officer here at uh, Utah Public Radio. This is a, a great opportunity I have to ask uh, questions that I hope uh, our listeners have and, and questions that I have. <laughs> and at the end there, you heard me ask a question I've always had, which is, uh, you know, 72 ended up to be a blowout. It looked that way early on once uh, McGovern got the nomination, Why the Dirty Tricks, and uh, John Farrell answered that. Uh, this was just part of uh, Nixon's political DNA. Um, so, uh, Ken Sanders, uh, um, you, you run yes, across sir. a lot of books. You're, you're, uh, there at your, your book, you, uh, you deal in uh, rare books. I wonder what, what you read, what you read personally.
2: <laughs> well, I have. Uh, it was a very long time ago, but uh, Fawn Brody, who wrote the groundbreaking biography of Joseph Smith, No Man Knows My History, also did a biography later on of Richard Nixon as well which I read many, many years ago. Uh, And I actually have a comment question. I I missed that segment, Tom, so it may have been covered. And gosh, I'm no religious expert in any way, shape, or form. But I thought that our ex-president, Richard Nixon, was what they call an evangelical Quaker, which is kind of a complete horse of a different color than the regular Quakers. They don't... All, they're hardly even the same religion mm. again, I don't know what I'm
0: talking about yeah that's what and, and I don't either and 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 Mr Farrell at the end there he he, he did say the west coast uh, Quakers were kind of a different uh flavor than the than the East Coast he said there there was a kind of a, a split he made made brief reference to that
2: interesting yeah I'll have to explore that more
0: yeah. But there are a lot of parallels. That's why it was such fascinating and a well-timed book. Mr. Farrell didn't, t- didn't plan this out, but a very well-timed uh, book, so a lot of parallels from then to, to now.
2: Yeah, it, it echoes from the 60s and early 70s, big time. And that's that's why earlier I was trying to stress, you know, the diversity of having, you know, why do we have multiple public radio stations in Utah. Well, you all serve a different market and a different audience, and it's called diversity. And biodiversity, whether it's in insects or mammals or humans, which are mammals, of course, is important. And I think diversity in this country is important. Diversity is what built this country. And we need access to different voices and different points of view.
0: And, of course, on public radio, we, we come to listeners uh, periodically and ask for your direct support. That's a very important part of this. So, uh, Ken Sanders, thank you so much for for your help. You've, you've pledged $100, you said earlier in the program. Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: And uh, I guess what, uh, maybe you could, uh, another appeal here, why, uh, why, we, why we need this support and, uh, and what that does when listeners do support it. Are you talking to uh, me? Y- yes, yes. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> you talking to me? <laughs> I'm talking to you. That's <laughs> well, right. <laughs> I, I don't mean to
2: harp on. The Look, some it, these things, the national programming that you bring in, local programming you produce, it all costs coin of the realm. The money's got to come from somewhere, and particularly with a uh, <clears throat> government these days that doesn't value diversity, that doesn't value people's different voices, and is trying to cut funding to, to uh, pro radio and TV public programming, it's all the more important if we in our own communities care about the product that we're getting from UPR, getting from public radio stations and public television stations as well, we have got to support them. If we don't support and buy local who the heck is going to care? We need the local news. We need the local poets, the local authors, the, it, not to ignore the national level, but no one else is going to provide the diversity of local programming, and we've got to step up. we got to people up and pay for it so that we can have some measure of cont- not control over it, but invest in it so that it will continue to survive. So we got to pay the money, and apparently now is the time to do that.
1: Yes, give us a call at 1-800-826-1495 or go to upr.org. That's upr.org. We will be repeating this program this evening at 7 o'clock. So if you're listening in the evening, uh, go to upr.org and make a pledge. We really would appreciate that. Um, I was thinking, as Ken was just talking, about uh, communities listening to public radio. I visited Vernal with Tom one time. With Tom, a friend, and I went out there for an opening that was taken place and this wonderful couple walked in from outside of vernal proper and she came just to tell us that she lived completely off the grid um had her uh, her own water well and everything they didn't have television um the only access that they had was um radio and public radio was so important to them and they listened to upr all the time they said if it wasn't for us they wouldn't know what was going on in the world. And it really impacted me that day to realize that someone, they relied on us. They completely relied on us for their information. And I know so many of us do. I, I listen to Morning Edition on my way into work every day. I turn it on when I get in my office, listen to All Things Considered on my way home, and access Utah during the middle of the day for information. It is a, a, It's like reading a book every single day you get that information. And if you're that type of person that gets your information for listening to Utah Public Radio, give us a call 1-800-826-1495 and make your pledge to public radio or go to upr.org.
0: Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we will uh, go to our final segment, and we'll have more conversation with Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books, who is joining us, along with Terry Guy, Development Officer at uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, our final interview is an uh, excerpt from fascinating interview from uh, July of 2015. It's called The True American. I talked with the, the author, Anand Girdardas, uh, the story of a Bangladeshi immigrant who was shot by an avowed American terrorist after 9-11 and then, uh, in- interesting um, result, he ends up, um, th- th- this man, uh, Raisuddin Buyan, um, trying to get to his uh, shooter off of death row. It's, an, it's a, a story about immigration, um, refugees, uh, who is a true American. It's also a story about uh, forgiveness. And we'll hear an excerpt from that conversation uh, when we come back following this break.
4: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting living history at the American West Heritage Center, featuring mountain men, pioneers, and turn-of-the-century farmers. Activities include pony rides, tomahawk throwing, and ragdoll making Information available at explorelogan.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday and celebrating 50 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 25 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com.
0: You're listening to The Best of Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. I'm Tom Williams along with Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio, and Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books. And we're exploring uh, some of our best book interviews on the program today. And we're looking for your support for this kind of programming. You can call 800-826-1495, 826 1495 or you can go to upr.org. Um, and we're going to go to a fascinating interview. An excerpt from that, the True American Anand Giridharadas from uh, twenty fifteen. Before we g- go there, Ken Sanders, uh, you're uh, you run Ken Sanders Rare Books. You're also yeah. an action hero of sorts. Um, <laughs> you uh, you, <laughs> you you remember the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of American? For a while, you were head of the uh, you were security chair, and in charge of uh, hunting down book thieves, which you did. And we, we had you on the program one time talking about a, a very famous example of where you, you helped to track down one of these book thieves.
2: Tom, I have a very obsessive personality. Uh, I believe I inherited it from my late father. And when I get hold of something, I I can have a tendency to go off the deep end about it. And the book thief story is far too long a story to tell, there's actually a whole book that a, a journalist from San Francisco wrote about it called The, the Man Who Loved Books Too Much, uh, that I, I've retitled the book, The Man Who Loved to Steal Books
0: Too Much. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And yeah,
2: I I, I played detective, uh, cyber detective, which is laughable, because anyone that knows me knows I'm a hopeless Luddite. I, I already lost the connection to, to you guys once already. Uh, <laughs> during this short time period. But I started using the Internet to track down a book thief and figured out uh, how he was doing it and who he was doing it to and set up a sting, and actually we, we caught him thanks to a extraordinary uh, California uh, police detective who actually was interested in book crime. Usually police departments have more weighty issues to deal with, and uh, sent him to San Quentin for three years. So yeah, I take book theft, whether in my store personally or in the trade, very seriously. And uh, you know, as an independent bookseller, it's it, in this 21st century digital age, it's very difficult to make a living. You know, just ask my colleagues, Betsy Burton at the King's English, or Tony Weller at Sam Weller's Books. You know, where we Weller's, of course, has been around forever, but. Uh, Betsy started a uh, year or two after I did the Cosmic Airplane back in the 70s and, uh, we're all still around and we're still all thriving. So it's, uh, but independent book selling with the advent of the internet has had a very, there's hundreds and thousands of independent new and used bookshops across the country at close. So I really subscribe to this, this buy local, shop local mentality, whether it's for tomatoes or books or, uh, vinyl albums, which I have a fondness for, and I think that has to include our public radio stations as well. You don't have commercial advertising. You've got to... Rep- and it's great, because if we don't care, if we don't care enough to give what we love our resources to, whether that's money or barter or whatever kind of help we can, then they're not gonna thrive and they're gonna die and it'll be the Darwinian survival of the fittest. So do we care about non commercial things or not? Certainly to me, money is no God, but it sure makes life easier. And so I'm giving a hundred bucks. How about how about the listeners out there?
1: Yes, give us a call at 1-800-826-1495 or go to org, and you can make a pledge like Ken Sanders. We all enjoy Ken very much on uh, Antiques Roadshow and I know our family enjoys going to his bookstore at uh, Ken Sanders Rare Books down in Salt Lake City frequently. We, we really enjoy that. So support Utah Public Radio as Ken does. Give us a call at 1-800-826-1495 or go to UPR.org.
0: Well, let's uh, jump into this uh, last excerpt. This is from uh, 2015 when I had the chance to uh, interview Anand Dardas on his book, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. True American tells the story of Resudan Buyan a Bangladeshi Air Force officer who dreams of immigrating to America working to technology. But days after 9-11, an avowed American terrorist named Mark Stroman seeking revenge walks into a Dallas mini-mart where Buyan has found temporary work and shoots him, maiming and nearly killing him. Two other victims at other gas stations aren't so lucky, dying at once. Ten years after the shooting, an Islamic pilgrimage seeds in Boyan a strange idea. If he's ever to be whole, he must reenter Stroman's life. Let's hear this excerpt. And uh, we are hearing this story and uh, treating issues of immigration, Islam and the West, uh, whether we control our destinies, and who is the true American. We're going to be talking about that. That's the title of the book, The True American, the author is New York Times columnist Anand Girdardas. So Mr. Girdardas, uh, now that uh, Mr. Bouillon has his mission, uh, he sees uh, forgiving Mr. Stroman as, as uh, I guess, a central part of that mission. And uh, that morphed extraordinarily into uh, trying to get Mr. Stroman off of death row. And this is Texas, <laughs> I'll remind people.
6: Uh, it, it, it It is, and and... You know, it began first with this idea of forgiving, and in, in Islam, uh, mercy, as as in Christianity, is a is uh, a paramount virtue. Um, and Rais Boyan was raised to believe that that uh, you know, the the passage uh, in the Quran that talks about eye for an eye that is so famous is actually followed by a clause that says, "But whoever forgives is closer to God." Um, And he was one of those people who really believed in um, that second clause. And so he decided to forgive Mark Stroman. But something about that felt inadequate to him, just forgiving, just letting it, saying that it's the kind of passage of bad feelings. He wanted to do something. And he decided that what he wanted to do was to save this man, uh, to make a gesture, to, to make people think again. But also, he had the specific vision of going around the world, him in person, Mark Stroman via Skype, um, giving speeches together, talking about the importance of overcoming hate. Um, And uh, you know, so he sues Rick Bouillon, sues Rick Perry in the courts of Texas, arguing that he and on behalf of the other two victims' families who agreed with him. Uh, didn't want Mark Stroman killed and not to kill him in their name.
0: Did the two men uh, encounter each other, speak to each other?
6: Um, they. So, one of the things that Racer then sued for is the right to meet uh, Stroman again. And that was actually part of Texas law that there's a right to victim offender mediation. Um, but So he sued for the right to do that, and that was part of his lawsuit to try to get this execution blocked, or at least delayed. Um, in the end, uh, he was not granted that opportunity to meet him. And, but they did speak um, for the second time, and only, you know, only other time besides the shooting, on the final day. Um, I would say uh, you know, a couple hours before the scheduled execution. If you want, I can even read you Uh, um, the transcript of that call. So Mark says, Race, how are you doing, Race? Race says, Hey, Mark, how are you, buddy? Mark says, How are you doing, man? Hey, man, thank you for everything you've been trying to do for me. You are inspiring. Thank you from my heart, dude. Race says, Mark, you should know that I'm praying for God, the most compassionate and gracious. I forgive you. And I do not hate you. I never hated you. Mark says, You are inspired, Grace. Grace says, And this is from the bottom of my heart. Mark says, You are a remarkable person. Thank you from my heart. I love you, bro. I love you with all my heart. Thank you for being such an awesome person. I mean it. So just a really remarkable exchange uh, given the only previous encounter between those people involved one of them shooting the other in the face.
0: Mm. Yeah, that is remarkable. And we should point out that Mark Stroman underwent a transformation on death row.
6: He did. And, and it's, it's, uh, you know, many people change when they go to prison, but I think Mark Stroman really had a series of epiphanies and many people who got to know him in that period, you know, say that what happened was all the bad influences on his life that had shaped him up to that point fell out of his life immediately all the drug dealers and the drugs and the and the kind of negative peers um, and the people who came into his life tended to be of us much higher quality and more caring and compassionate you know pastors ministers uh, friends uh, a documentary filmmaker who who uh, became interested in his life and, and befriended him and mentored him um, and I think we tend to think about people as being malleable when they're very young and then, and then somewhat fixed. But what was so scary in a way about Mark Stroman's evolution in prison is that people so deprived of love when they are young as he was. I mean, this is a guy whose mother told him when he was a little boy that if she'd had $50 more when she was pregnant, she would have aborted him and should have aborted him but didn't get around to it. Um, Someone who grows up in that atmosphere where he was, you know, made to mow the lawn with his bare hands because he was allergic to grass. That kind of environment. Um, that someone like that is so starved of love that when they actually get it in their 30s, they can actually, they can actually change. Maybe not change as much as uh, would be needed to rectify the original deprivation, but change. And he did change, and he became more open. He confronted his own feelings. He started to understand uh, this hurt-or-be-hurt hurt mentality that his daughter spoke of, and how it had defined his life, and how pain uh, had had defined him. And one of his last words as he lay on the gurney um, was, one second of hate will cause a lifetime of pain. And uh, he had learned that the hard way. Hmm.
0: What What do you? What role could forgiveness Play in the criminal justice system. How do, how how would you link those two?
6: You know, I think this idea of mercy that that Raisa then raised in the lawsuit and 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 asked us to think about is an idea with many levels of applicability. And and I'm with you. You know, I, I don't know that I would do the same thing in the situation. You know, while I was writing this book, my wife would sometimes say to me, you know, why don't you forgive me about this thing we're arguing about? You're writing this whole <laughs> book about forgiveness. You know. Uh, it's not easy business, this this forgiveness. But I so so I don't think that, you know, that we should take racist things literally that, you know, everybody who is a victim of a attempted murder should forgive their attacker. That's not what this is about. But I think we should take this larger idea of mercy and say, what does it mean in criminal justice? And that's actually happening. I mean, I think this year, more than any other year in the last few decades, There's been a real movement to say we need to reform the criminal justice in the direction of mercy. And we need to understand that when, you know, uh, a 15 year old kid has an ounce of marijuana on him, we should not, uh, you know, deal with him in a way that essentially restricts his chances of ever working, having housing or being married ever again. Um, that's not merciful, and we should reform the system in the direction of mercy. And I think it's that idea of mercy that has actually brought a lot of conservatives and religious conservatives onto the program of reforming this system that, you know, really liberals have tended to emphasize reforming in the past. Uh, but I wouldn't confine it to just criminal justice. I think it challenges us, this story, to ask what it would mean to build a more merciful country. Um, what's a more merciful economic policy what's a more merciful immigration policy what's a more merciful attitude to the suffering that people have with broken families uh, what is a more merciful education system look like um, if the idea of mercy is giving people second chances it is closely allied to the idea of America which is giving people second chances in a kind of different sense and um, and I think somewhere along the way we lost, uh, have lost, uh, that strain of mercy in in the American blood. Um, and I think Raisuddin's story and Mark Stroman's story is a is a challenge to us to perhaps recover it.
0: Here's an email from Gary and Logan. Uh, he says I've he- I heard about your book on the podcast show about race. So great to hear you on Axis, Utah. I'm struck by the subject of your book, His Desire for the Shooter to Not Be Executed. I find it curious how Ray Bouillon's story resembles the forgiveness that the families of Charleston victims bestowed upon Dylan Roof.
6: Yeah, I was so struck and astonished as of the whole country when, you know, the headline one day is this massacre, and the headline the next day is I forgive you. And uh, it obviously came out of a place of uh, spirituality for many of those people, but it came out of a, um, I think, an idea that maybe is gaining ground in our time. Um, that forgiveness is not just saying, "Hey, no big deal." Uh, you can you can say, "Hey, this is a really big deal," and and forgive. And I think this is actually challenging us to think about what does it mean to forgive, um, to punish. To, to give people their due, but to, to think and act more mercifully. If, if, uh, if the families, the parents who had to bury their own children, uh, could the day afterward forgive Dylan Roof, uh, it shames all of us a little bit into perhaps being a little more merciful in the more trivial situations uh, in which we find ourselves.
0: Just a couple of minutes left. I'm curious, uh, did uh, researching and writing uh, Race Bouillon's uh, journey uh, change your perspective on immigration in any way?
6: Um, I think it, it you know, I, I come from an immigrant family, and so I've, I've dealt with this my whole life in different ways. My parents are immigrants. And um, I think what I learned in the course of writing this book was actually how complicated the American model is, because part of what our model is doing is, I mean, we, we really really taken a lot more immigrants than most other places. And we do that to uh, for a variety of motivations, to be open to the world, to accept refugees, the tired, huddled masses idea. We also do it for very practical business reasons. Immigrants tend to be, you know, more likely to start businesses and Hardworking, and in a way, we're cherry picking the best and brightest from other societies and 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 putting them into our system. Um, but I I started to understand how that very important goal of bringing new blood into the system um, really wrestles with the very real challenge of a country that is perpetually passing into new hands and. That's not easy for people who are not the new blood, but are the old blood. And I think, you know, uh, I'm certainly a big fan of, of new blood. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Um, but I think sometimes those of us who are can be unsympathetic to how difficult it is for the old blood. And I think we could be much better as a society at helping to manage that those transitions of a country recurringly passing into new hands and new blood.
0: That's an excerpt from my conversation from 2015, July of that year, with Anand Geardardust. The True American is his book. And uh, we have with us uh, for another couple of minutes Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books and uh, Terry Guy, Development Officer here at uh, Utah Public Radio. As I listen to that, there's uh, some wistfulness, at least in in my my emotions. Um, He's expressing a bit of optimism. He's also kind of previewing what's happened in the ensuing two years. We've we've felt a big backlash.
1: Yes, it really does. Uh, it's a reminder that we maybe should all think twice before making comments or voicing our opinions that, that uh, you know, maybe we're stepping on someone else's toes and maybe we should think about that more than once. Uh, it was very good. Very good interview. Thank you.
0: And uh, that's the kind of interview we do. We try to bring you the, the best, most timely um, interviews, uh, reach back into history as well. And a whole range of things. We hope that that's uh, you agree that this is worth supporting. And uh, Ken Sanders is—he's kicking in a hundred dollars. Won't you join your support with his, uh, Ken? What would you say here? The last couple of minutes.
2: I think the segment you just aired and others like it. Speaking for myself, uh, as a aging white male. Uh, The last year or two of politics in this country has made me realize that despite how liberal I might have thought I have been my entire life, I don't have an inkling, not even a clue what it's like to be an immigrant, to be a person of color or not or a minority in this country and not that they're minorities but also I don't have the foggiest idea what a woman goes through in her life on a day-to-day basis as speaking as that aging white male. And programs like you the segment you just aired gives inklings and clues on what it's like for others and talking about mercy and forgiveness and being able to have empathy and understanding what's that like and i don't pretend to i'm the aging white male guy i'm clueless but it being able to be self-aware of that means maybe we can progress from that and they're maybe there would be hope for the future. doesn't seem like it right now, but let's hope
0: that there is. Right. We have to keep hope alive. And uh, Yeah, well said, and that's what we try to do here on on, uh, Access Utah. In fact, it's sort of a vision uh, statement for Axis Utah is our Utah community. We try to understand each other, try to bring each other together, uh, talk with each other, perhaps across divides. That's what we're trying to do here, and if you support this kind of programming, we hope you'll call right now, 800-826-1495.
1: Yes, just a reminder to everyone that we do have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match challenge this morning from uh, Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont, that, that they are going to match dollar-for-dollar dollar up to $3,000. And uh, we hope that you will uh, join with that pledge. And Ken Sanders is making a pledge of 100 That makes his pledge worth 200 to us today, and we really appreciate that. So give us a call at one 800 1-800-826-1495 and make your pledge or go to upr.org and help us reach this challenge for the day help us to make this a successful pledge drive and uh, keep Access Utah alive
0: well, Ken Sanders thank you so much for being with us thanks to you for everything you do in the community and the great work you do there at Ken Sanders Rare books and we we'll, I assume we'll keep seeing you on Antiques Roadshow and other things you bet Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Terry. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again, and uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.
4: You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.